0: This is The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. In this episode, Dennis Worrell shares the secrets of an apartheid-era diplomat. One of the cardinal rules in biographies is not to be put off by the first few chapters. More so in autobiographies, those books where the life story is being written by the subject themselves. It was a good thing I remembered this when tackling South African politician and diplomat Dennis Worrell's autobiography, which is called The Independent Factor. The first few chapters are dry, they're a testament to his diplomatic side, with 60 years of diaries being trapped to produce laundry lists of people he wanted to be sure weren't offended by being left out. But true to the genre's form, this biography turns lively around a quarter of the way in. Worrell starts sharing a host of insights that even now you might have expected would remain unsaid. Among the more interesting was the optimistic lead-up to and subsequent fallout after Prime Minister P.W. Buerta's watershed Rubicon speech on the 15th of August 1985. More of that later, but in his talk at South Africa House last week, Worrell omitted to share the backstory of how South Africa managed to escape total meltdown after that. 1985 moment. In his book, Worrell reminds us that in the wake of Boerter's middle finger to the world, just two weeks after the Rubicon speech, South Africa had closed its foreign exchange markets and declared a unilateral moratorium on all of its debt repayments. On the 27th of August, Worrell got a call from Boerter's office instructing him to fetch Reserve Bank Governor Gerard de Kock from Heathrow and go with the man who looked after South Africa's central bank to Rothschild's bank in the city of London, this fabled privately-owned financial institution, which P.W. Boerter apparently believed was able to sort out the mess. Warrell writes that after de Kock had said his piece in the meeting, Rothschild chairman Sir Evelyn called in four young executives, and in a couple of hours they'd returned with a debt standstill proposal that was duly accepted, not just by uh, Sir Evelyn Rothschild, but also by South Africa itself. That proposal, a schedule of debt repayments that lasted five years, turned the country into a capital exporter, forcing the regime to face the reality that it could no longer afford its dysfunctional approach. It's an untold story of how it might have been Rothschild and the global banking community which actually brought down apartheid. For his part, Warrell regards himself as a liberal inside a rotten system, the globe-trotting academic who was roped in by the politicians to urge the rest of humanity to give South Africa time to change its trajectory. Given his subsequent actions, which we'll hear more about later, there's some credence in that story. Despite revisionary hardliners who maintain that such liberal forces within the old party merely prolonged apartheid's agony, it's cause to believe that without them, South Africa may even have ended up like Syria. In that context, it was instructive that Worrell was given the honor of being able to launch his autobiography at South Africa House on Trafalgar Square and to hear South Africa's incumbent High Commissioner, Tembi Tambo, introduce her predecessor in glowing terms. What an honor to have you here. When I got your letter, it made me feel the relevance of my story as well because I've also come back I don't know how much you know about uh, His Excellency Dr. Warrell, but he's lived quite an extraordinary life there are legacies that he's left behind in South Africa as we speak, the Democratic Party being one of them that will forever speak of his courage and his integrity and his determination to see things done correctly, so for him to have taken this Place, as where well, he wanted to launch his remarkable book um, is a real honour for us. And I think it's it's also a sign of the unification of South Africa. Quite an introduction from the daughter of ANC icon Oliver Tambo, a man after whom Johannesburg's International Airport has been named. So let's meet Worrell himself. Here's how he describes his career, his life.
1: I was ambassador from '84. Through to the beginning of 87 It is a, a very important part Of what was otherwise A very varied life I've been a, an executive trainee in business I have been a judge's clerk I've practised as an advocate I've been a, a professor Political science in several continents I've been head of of an international bank. Many different things. And of course, a politician in South Africa and ambassador in London and prior to that in Australia.
0: After he resigned to go back to South Africa and into opposition politics, pretty much everyone who'd seen him in action in London described Worrell as a cut above those who'd been there before him. With hindsight... He was the best that the country had in the diplomatic corps at that time. Recognition of the support that South Africa enjoyed from the UK's Iron Lady, its Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher.
1: I was here during the Thatcher years. I was in a period when we were opposed as a country to sanctions. And when the world wanted to impose sanctions full scale sanctions on South Africa and the one person in the world, the one political leader in the world who really opposed sanctions strongly was in fact Margaret Thatcher and I combined with her, we worked together as a matter of fact Charles Pole now Lord Pole who was a private secretary described me, Dennis Worrell, as a spy within South African officialdom back home in terms of the advice he gave Margaret and I. I was able, in Australia, notwithstanding difficulties from the government, I was able to perform what diplomats should do, promote trade, promote relations between the countries, I was able to do that. I felt a sense of satisfaction. Come to London and it's a totally different situation. The pressures are enormous. The uh, anti-apartheid movement is the strongest in the world. It's. It was a very difficult situation.
0: A very difficult situation that's something of an understatement as we read when you go through Worrell's book but he worked out a plan and played to the country's limited strengths like a poker master making the most of a weak hand
1: I don't want to go into all the crises that I experienced but my experience in London was solving crises caused by the South African government the fact is the South African government and particularly its leader at the time P.W. Booter had no sense of the importance of international relations to the country no realisation of the particular importance of Maggie Thatcher and the Brits to South Africa at that time and of course British business was deeply engaged in South Africa I can illustrate it in a little way I'm told that sure I was told shortly after I came here I was told that Dennis Thatcher one day came down the stairs from the apartment in their apartment and he saw a suitcase standing at the door and he said who does that belong to and somebody mentioned the name where's he going to South Africa lucky bugger anyway the fact is the general view I mean I would uh, the best bit of advice I got was from a previous ambassador Carl De Vette, who had two terms here and he was very successful as an ambassador, and he, uh, I went to him and asked his advice, and he said, look, you concentrate on the city, leave the politicians uh, to your number two, because all they really want is a free trip to South Africa, (laughs) you concentrate on business, and I took that advice seriously, every lunch, as my wife will confirm, was in the city. I addressed all the associations in the city that I could and the result was that I developed a relationship that did vie with the anti-apartheid organisation and did very much support uh, Margaret Thatcher's approach to the
0: country stressful as that first year in office might have been, it was a cakewalk compared with what came after August 1985.
1: The expectations which were created were so enormous that he was going to cross the Rubicon uh, by implication, release Mandela and a lot of other things, and in effect he fell into the Rubicon. It was as simple as that. But. The strain on us was quite enormous, and a whole lot of crises. I want to focus however on one, to give you an idea of the kind of difficulties that my staff and I experienced, and this related to the Eminent Persons Group, the Nassau Commonwealth Heads of Government Conference, which uh, Maggie knew it was going to be difficult, and she organised a seminar before the conference and they worked out various strategies, uh, all the top people in government. The one thing they included, which was kept under a cover, was a group could be sent to South Africa to in fact from the Commonwealth, to try and promote better relations between the Commonwealth and South Africa. And that was to be called the Eminent Persons Group. The conference had one subject, one topic, and that was sanctions and South Africa. And it was a very difficult conference for, for Maggie. At its conclusion, she produced the Eminent Persons Group to save the whole effort, and in fact not for it to be a total disaster from a British point of view. And they accepted it. The ANC was very unhappy because they had wanted sanctions to come out of this conference. But the fact is that they accepted the Eminent Persons Group, and this was brought together in due course they met in london and uh, i knew that the south african embassy here would play an extremely important role in advising them what they could expect and so on when the eminent persons group of about six top leaders arrived in london they met at sammy ronfall's office Commonwealth Office. They planned their strategy and they invited me to give a point of view. And at that time, Carl von Hirschberg, who was a top diplomat in Pretoria, was sent across to manage this with me. And Carl von Hirschberg is a very remarkable South African ambassador. I would have thought that the meeting justified Peckwater, the foreign minister coming, but anyway I was delighted to have uh, Carl join me when I met with him I said to him, Carl what's the story, what's our line what position are we to adopt and he said, Dennis I tried to get hold of the foreign minister I only got to speak to him at the top of the stairs, when he was on his way to the loo, that's as much guidance as we got from Pretoria on this critical issue. So we met; he and I met with uh, the EPG, and uh, it was quite extraordinary because we both made little speeches that expressed the right sentiment, so on. The two co-leaders of the EPG were sitting in the front row. One was Malcolm Fraser and the other was Abbasanio the Nigerian general. Suddenly I thought he was asleep because his cap was over his forehead. But suddenly Abbasanio said, "Ambassador, you were at University of Ibadan and you were Nigeria's one-mile champion. (laughs) And everybody absolutely bloody amazed. And I had to say, uh, General, uh, yes, I spent a very happy year teaching and studying at the University of Ibadan. But I was not Nigerian mile champion. I was Nigerian University's mile champion. (laughs) And I might have added that I ran for Nigerian universities against Ghana but uh, to no credit of Nigeria because all I saw was this chap's heels. (laughs) He in fact was the Olympic, Ghana's Olympic champion. But that created quite an image around me clearly. This is not a normal South Africa and uh, we had a very good relationship uh, Shortly after that meeting Sunny Ramphal had a, had a uh, lunch for the uh, for the EPG group and he invited Anita and I Anita had a very good chance of talking to Abbasanya the fact is that uh, we were very hopeful the EPG then went to South Africa I accompanied them on both their trips and was in South Africa for the, the period that they were there. The second meeting and last meeting was quite extraordinary because um, Peck Buerta addressed us on a Friday afternoon. It was not a normal meeting, it was not a formal meeting. In fact, we had snacks and we were lying around I mean it was lounging around it was extraordinary and Peck spoke and told us that he was totally totally convinced that on Monday when we met with the government we would have a deal and by that he meant a deal that would satisfy the ANC also it was, it was quite extraordinary. It was so totally overconfident, or so full of confidence. That night, Friday, two of the, the leaders of the group went off to Lusaka to, in fact, uh, inform uh, the ANC just what had happened. And uh, the rest of us Thought, well, it's going to be great on Monday. That Sunday night, the SADF bombed three ANC facilities in three countries. And that was it. We met, and uh, my arch opponent, Chris Hinnis, whom I was to oppose in an election later made a short speech in which she said, look, we can't uh, continue with this. It is too much like foreign interference in South Africa's internal affairs, and that's it. Obviously, the EPG members were very unhappy about this. They said there would be consequences, and there were going to be consequences. That night, I flew back to London on the same flight as uh, the British representative and Malcolm Fraser. And I could see in that discussion that Malcolm Fraser uh, was not going to give up. And he said, we will continue with this, and I had no doubt that with big international meetings to follow, that um, uh, the pressure on, on Britain and on Thatcher in particular, even within her own cabinet, would be enormous. But it was a decision taken by the South African government and it left us in the embassy. You can imagine how disappointed we were. And there were so many instances of that sort that left us without any real response. You tried to explain things, but in fact it didn't work. And so, increasingly, I began to ask myself really, what am I doing here? I was into resignation mode.
0: Well, it wasn't long afterwards that Worrell did the unthinkable by not only resigning, but returning to South Africa to take on his former bosses by standing for election against P.W. Bota's right-hand man, Chris Hearnes, in the unwinnable Helderberg constituency. Unwinnable it remained, but Worrell lost by just 20 votes out of 18,000. He was publicly supported in that election by business leader Johan Rupert, sportsman Gary Player, and a bunch of other high-profile personalities. But mostly he cast the die for a massive change in the attitude of white South Africans who en masse started believing that reform was now urgently required and could actually happen. But I won't spoil any more of Worrell's book. It's well worth the 120 Rand that I paid for the Kindle edition. So go and unlock some more of those untold secrets for yourself. But remember, persevere past the early chapters. This has been The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.